Hello and welcome to 2020 Politics War Room with James Carville, who's down in New Orleans. I'm Al Hunt here in Washington. We are proud partners with the Sign Institute at American University. We again have a great show with someone who I consider the foremost expert on Donald Trump. But first, don't forget to subscribe to 2020 Politics War Room on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. James, down in New Orleans, you're doing okay? Doing pretty good. We've got a lot of rain down here, I'll tell you that. Wow. Well, I just hope you don't have the big storm. You, you don't need that. That's the No, we sure don't. We do not. I repeat, right. we do not need it or want it. James, I was fortunate, I really mean that, for six years to work with Tim O'Brien at Bloomberg. He was the publisher of the editorial page at Bloomberg. Uh, it was a great hire when it was made in 2013, I believe. He'd been a star reporter and editor for the New York Times. was a path-breaking investigations editor for Huffington Post. But it became even more golden a few years later, as Tim had written a terrific book about Donald Trump years earlier. He then trounced Trump when the Donald sued him and went to court. And no one has more knowledge or better understanding of Donald Trump and Tim O'Brien. Tim, really, it's terrific to have you on this program. I am thrilled to be here. I'm looking forward to talking to you guys. Great. You know, Trump has had, for all of his faults, he's had an almost Houdini-like ability to escape from peril. Bankruptcy, scandals, indictments, impeachment. I'm pretty sure, I'm more than pretty sure, he's not going to escape from electoral defeat. Uh, And do you think he realizes that, or would any of the sycophants around him be afraid to tell him that? Uh, He would never realize it, Al, because he's too broken, I think, emotionally and psychologically to be reflective. You know, it's not a a novel insight to to talk about Trump as a profound narcissist, and it it disables his his ability to grow and reflect. And he's always surrounded himself with yes people. So he's he's never really brooked anyone challenging his way of thinking. I, I think what's really different about this moment, if you think back about these stages of Trump's life, he, he is probably, he's, he's certainly the, the most successful con man of the modern era, but he's also one of the luckiest people uh, who's ever lived because he had this first ring of fire surrounding him when he was born into a wealthy family that protected him from the consequences of his own mistakes. You know, the rest of us make mistakes throughout our life. We try to learn from them and we grow, but he's never had to do that because he's always been insulated from reality. His, his father's wealth, wealth uh, insulated him from his educational failures and then from his business failures. Uh, then he became a celebrity through The Apprentice and he had this second ring of fire around him. Uh, you know, famously, which he recognized in... Um, the Access Hollywood video, when, when you're a star, they let you do it. Uh, and then he gets into the White House and he has this third ring of fire, uh, the presidency, which insulates him legally uh, from the consequences of amoral and, and unlawful behavior that other people would be checked on. And and he just, he's going to turn this month um, 74 years old. And, and he's essentially a seven-year-old grown old. I think what's happened in the moment we're in now is that the coronavirus pandemic and uh, the Black Lives Matters protests uh, surrounding George Floyd's arrest and and, and death um, uh, have really stripped him naked in front of a global audience and shown how inept he is. And all of these things that insulated him in the past, I think he's going to have a hard time engineering those to insulate him in the present. 
Tim, he's like a cornered animal now uh, who always lashes out. When you think about it and you know him, what do you believe or what do you fear he might do in the next couple of months? I've always been afraid, Al, of what he would do with the military. I, uh, you know, he's uh, he, he's never bothered to become a student of the machinery of government or public policy making. Uh, he lacks the intellectual curiosity and the discipline to do that. I think he quickly discovered when he got into the presidency, the most latitude for a president were around issues of foreign policy. And you started seeing him, uh, you know, do all of this dangerous and inane courting um, with, with, with Kim in, in, in North Korea and Putin in Russia. Um, and I worried then that he would use a military strike in Iran or North Korea or elsewhere to promote or protect himself. I think we've now discovered in just the last two weeks, he's actually willing to consider sending American troops into the streets to, to quell a legitimate protest. And I'm worried, I am worried that he will default to that again in the coming months if the odds stack up against him. And I'm also worried that if, if the 2020 presidential election is close, Trump is going to contest the results and try to find uh, some reason not to leave the White House uh, uh, like an adult and peacefully. Well, I think, I think that's an absolute certainty, and that's the reason uh, that uh, it, it has to be a, a, a decisive victory. You wrote the other day, everything you write about Trump, uh, I devour, because it's also good. You wrote the other day that you could imagine if Trump does have to leave, that he's going to attempt to buy a media company to compete with Fox. Uh, he'll tour stadiums. He'll offer the faithful another Elmer Gantry-like uh, revival, and he's going to remain a force in American politics, dar- darkening the national dialogue. Uh, is that the way you see him? Yeah, you know, he's an attention addict. You know, for as much of a bully as he is and for as um, flagrant as he is, he's he's deeply insecure. And that's one of the reasons he loves crowds. It's one of the reasons he loves being center stage. He is an attention addict. Um, and that's why he has a love-hate relationship with the media. He will immediately, on one hand, blast reporters for being critical of him, but he can't do without their attention. And I, uh, you know, I think they were considering looking at media enterprises uh, prior to, to the election. And and I wouldn't be surprised if they looked at a company like Sinclair and they being Jared and, and his father-in-law and tried to take it over as a competitor of Fox and just continue to promote um, his relationship with, uh, you know, older white males, ze- zealous right wingers, um, disaffected people of all stripes, displaced rural and industrial workers, um, and 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 he thrives on that. And I, and I think that speech he gave in front of St. John's Church, using the Bible as a prop, was as much about solidifying his relationship to his base as anything else. So, Tim, if the election were held today, he would be humiliated, right? I mean, he just would. Yep. There's no doubt about that. And the likely, the, the three things could happen. It stays where it is. He gets really beaten bad. It gets better for him. Or it could even get worse. So let's assume he gets wiped out. 
double-digit popular vote margin, 56 Democratic senators, 15 new Democratic House members, state legislature. The Republican Party basically is a wipeout. What, in, given his state of mind and what you know about him, what do you think he's likely to do between November 3rd and of <laughs> 2020 and January 20th of 2021? Um, I think it would be a, a sort of a, a blessing on the process if he's wiped out because it will be harder for him to claim that the election was rigged or the out, the outcome was rigged. He will certainly say that um, if it's close. Uh, he will say it, not be able to get away from it, away with it, if it's a broad margin. I, you know, I mean, the, you know, the, the Republican Party has kowtowed and acquiesced to this man in jaw-dropping ways for so long now that I'm hard-pressed to say they wouldn't acquiesce to him trying to have permanent residence in the White House. Um, uh, How could but, they do that? But I just think it would be really hard for them to do that in a landslide no, change. I just can't do that. I don't see them no, doing that. Do that. What, what, what is, would he, would he do something really stupid? I mean, given his state of mind, the man is under, he's, he's not the most stable person to start with. Well, I mean, I think he's going to have a meltdown and he's going to lash out and he's going to say the results aren't legitimate. I think that's a given. I think the question is, how do the, you know, how does the machinery of government and the parties uh, escort him out the door if that happens? That's the crisis. And, you know, there's been a lot of stuff, speculation. Al and I spoke about this recently. I, I don't put a lot of credibility into it. It's just too conspiratorial by my lights. But this idea that, you know, he would reside in favor of Mike Pence so Pence could then pardon him so he wouldn't face any legal consequences after he leaves office. I find that totally um you know, Manchurian candidate kind of stuff. But um, I do think he's thinking right now about how to engineer an, an exit should he lose, where he ends up not being in the crosshairs of a number of law enforcement bodies that are still looking at him and leaving where he can say it wasn't about him. He didn't lose the race because of what he did. It was because of other things. And those are, I think, the two things spinning in his mind right now. But right now, He's he's going to lose bad. It's really bad. I mean, you can't you can't look at what's coming in and kind of think anything else. And you know, I'll not talk about it later, but you look at the Georgia, the number of people that are going out and vote. And right. I mean, that's literally the country is in a in a revolt against him. Six and he and Biden are what neck and neck in Ohio. Who would ever thought that would happen in Ohio? It looks like he's going to get thumped in Michigan. Yeah, he's right. He, I'm just for a moment. Uh, as I, when the facts change, I change my mind. But right now, it's pretty clear. Right. But that's right. I mean, here's the thing, though. It's it's still, you know, it's five months away. I think that there's still some wild card stuff around Joe Biden that, that we'll have to see how that plays out when when he gets back into a more uh, visible campaign mode. Um, the Trump people are going to go at him hard. But look, the voters, the voters saved us in the 2018 midterms and the voters made what they made their preferences known in the primaries. They are being very practical. They're coming out in force, particularly, as you note, voters of color. And I think that weighs very heavily against him. Is he, is he, 
about what you expected or, or worse than what you expected? Um, so I will, I'll, I'll answer that twice. I never thought he'd get elected president. I thought he would be the nominee. And I went on the record saying there's no way this guy's going to get elected. So I am not a Me bulletproof uh, forecaster here. That makes three of us. Yeah. Having said that, there is nothing he's done that surprises me. Um, what's I am more surprised by how institutions around him and the Republican Party have responded to him. That that's the piece of it that surprised me. The how easily it's he has been able to um, try to undermine a variety of American institutions, and and how how utterly decrepit and um, uh, uh, sort of acquiescent that the, the GOP is. That that's that surprised me, but maybe that didn't surprise you guys. <laughs> no, because he maintained his popularity and With that they're base. all they're back, yeah. That they, they go against yeah. him, they lose. Yeah. You know? Tim, you uh, when when he 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 James he sued Tim uh, because he said that Tim had understated his wealth uh, and he got clobbered in, in 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 court. But Tim is one of the very few people who's ever seen Donald Trump's tax returns. He can't talk about what he saw, but you at least have an idea. Um, Tim, uh, he may lose this case, and it may be the Manhattan DA investigators there are going to see his business records and his tax returns. Um, if, if, if that's the case and they are probably more recent than what you looked at some years ago, would it be your guess that that could pose new legal problems for him? Um, actually the ones they want are the ones that I saw years ago. I actually, I, I think that, I've been, uh, yeah, I've been worried of, you know, when, when the house, uh, when house ways subpoenaed the, his tax records, they were asking for the most recent six years. And I actually think the most recent six years may not get to the stuff he's the most worried about. Um, uh, you know, there's uh, reputational reasons he doesn't want his tax returns out. It would show that he doesn't have as much money as he's claimed. You know, he's lied for years and years about how wealthy he is. Um, it would show his business is not as big as, it, as he said it, as has said it is. It would show that he's not a... Um, a generous philanthropist. He doesn't give away money at all. That would all, that's what concerned him in the past. I think what concerns him in the present is the sources of his income. And, and there's always been this mystery around why he kowtows to foreign leaders, especially foreign leaders in countries where he has business interests. And I think if his tax returns, I, you know, I, I can't get into a lot of specifics because of some of the court orders around the tax returns I looked at, but the returns would reveal his foreign sources of income, uh, to say that politely. And um, uh, he doesn't want people to know what the money trail behind him looks like. Uh, we know from court papers that one of the big properties he uh, he was involved with in, in uh, lower Manhattan, the Trump Soho, had tons of money come into it from Eastern Europe. People in that project said some of it was laundered money, et cetera, et cetera. Um, he's tried for years to do projects unsuccessfully in Russia. Uh, so I think he's I think he's petrified of that specifically. Uh, you know, the Manhattan DA is looking at at whether or not the, you know the Trump organization used accounting gimmicks and 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 other um, maneuvers to disguise payoff money that went to Stormy Daniels. Um, 
um, uh, the porn star that that who alleges that she had a sexual encounter with Trump. Um, I think that you know that kind of stuff. If more detail comes out on that, it affects his marriage. But I don't think that he cares about how it affects his reputation. But the money stuff is is very real to him. Let me try one more, and then turn it over to James. What do you see after the Trump presidency? Ivanka Trump and as we call them, uh, Uday and Hussein, Donald and Eric. <laughs> um, I think, I think you know, they're all going to stay in business together. You know, the thing to remember about the Trumps is these are all profoundly C-minus people. It's, you know, Trump has always gotten away with this idea that he hires the best people and they're all rocket scientists and they're, they're wonderfully good at this and that. And, and the reality is they run a mom and pop boutique business that is essentially turning Donald Trump into a, a human billboard and they just market his name. It is not complex. He's never been a great deal maker. Uh, and the children, um, you know, Don Jr. had a very troubled relationship with his father. He left home uh, after college, moved out to Colorado, didn't talk to his dad for a couple of years. But the kids have all come back to him as a source of gravity in their lives. And they will all stay in business together. I would highly recommend, if you've never seen it, to watch a, a tape of Howard Stern asking Don Jr., Ivanka, and Donald, the paterfamilias, to try to multiply 16 times 7 live on camera. None of them can do it, including the president. <laughs> um, uh, they, they're not good at math. But, you know, they'll market him. And the most obvious way for them to do that, I would think, is in a media company. And I think... Jared, you know, used to run the New York Observer. He fashions himself a media titan. I just think that's where they're going to go. So yet this lawsuit, what exactly did he sue you for? He, you know, he, uh, so I was at the New York Times at the Times, James, and, and I'd been covering him episodically. I, you know, I first began covering Donald Trump in, in 1990. I was the research assistant on the first biography of him by an investigative reporter at the Village Voice named Wayne Barrett. And we reported on Trump's political affairs and business affairs in basically then New York and Atlantic City. Um, I wrote a gambling book in the mid-1990s that I interviewed him for. And then in the early 2000s when what, I was- You wrote the, a gambling book? Yeah, a sort of social history of gambling in America. And there was oh, wow. a chapter in there about Atlantic City. And, um, and I interviewed Trump for that. Um, and then I'm at the New York Times in the early 2000s, and he's on his- whatever at that point, say six of nine lives. Um, uh, this guy who had been a punchline for the excesses of the 1980s has reemerged as the entrepreneurial guru to the masses through The Apprentice. And meanwhile, out in the real world, he was driving his casinos into bankruptcy again. So I began covering all that and he began courting me very closely over the course of a couple of years. We traveled. Um, he didn't like my coverage, but he kept, you know, invited me to come and speak to him. So I ultimately uh, wrote a biography of him in 2005 called Trump Nation. Um, and uh, there's about six pages in the book about how much he has uh, bullshitted the media over the years about how much money he has and the simple fact of him inflating his wealth and 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 manipulating the media's coverage of his wealth. Um, got him press coverage and the press coverage got him business deals and that got him banking relationships. And it was all built on sand. And, you know, the earlier book I had worked on with, with Wayne Barrett was a really deep investigative book. The book that I did, Trump Nation, tried to place 
this guy in the American experience? How did this person who is in inept in so many ways and reptilian has this reptilian ability to survive and others get a toehold in casinos and politics and real estate and television and all these other realms. Um, he, he felt that the pages that, uh, detailed how he had misrepresented his wealth, uh, damaged his reputation. And he sued me for libel saying that, that his reputation had been damaged by that. Um, he sued me in 2006. Um, I had the New York Times as lawyers on my side. Um, my book publisher, Warner Books, retained Mary Jo White, the former U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, as my attorney. Um, Trump's attorney was Mark Kasowitz, who famously tried to defend him in the early stages of the Mueller probe. Um, and and we just killed them in court. The facts were on my side. Um uh, because he sued me, uh, alleging, uh, false information on his finances that gave us access to his banking records, his taxes and other business records. Uh, we deposed him for two days in 2007 two eight hour depositions. He tried to get those sealed and our attorneys, uh, essentially attached them, uh, to a motion, uh, to dismiss the case towards the end of the of the litigation and Trump's lawyers freaked out. They didn't want the deposition deposition to become public. The judge said, well, the depositions reveal Mr. Trump for who he is. The public should know. And that became a public record. And it's the deposition alone is sort of a Rosetta stone of understanding who Trump is. Uh, James, I read, I read part of that deposition, maybe all of it. And Tim, I think I, I remember this right. At one point, Mary Jo White asked him how much he thought he was worth. And he, the answer basically was, it depends on how I feel. That's exactly right, Al. He said, my mood, the day of the week, how things are going. At another point, you know, they were asking him to account for these, these phantom profits he was claiming in his golf course business. And uh, they asked him if he kept a ledger of, of his finances for the golf course. And he said, no. And they said, well, then how do you keep track of these things? And he said, mental projections. And I always loved that one. I so I think he leads his whole life by using mental projections to get by. You, you don't have to. You don't have to be very smart to have a very good lawyer. When somebody comes, he used to be a lawyer, not very good one, a very short period of time. But if somebody wants something, says, "Hey, James, let's sue this guy," and I said, "Just so you know, if you sue this guy, he can sue you back, or you know, or anything. Once in in a civil case, you don't have any." You don't have a right to remain silent. Get anything you want. And knowing everything he knew, it was really stupid to sue you. I think. Well, that's the, that the key. The key observation there, James, is stupid. And and I'm not being facile here. You know, we cannot dismiss the extent to which Donald Trump is not a bright man. Um, on the other hand, um, he is a street smart survivor, and. Um, we're in an era where, you know, I was fortunate. I was at the New York Times. I had a book publisher with resources. They were willing to get me legal counsel. Um, there's been a real chilling effect in the media um, around people with deep pockets being able to kill stories or kill book projects simply by the threat of litigation. And, um, uh, you know, I'm not the first person he has threatened to sue. I'm one of the few he actually went through and, and actually did sue me. Um, but he learned this at the feet of Roy Cohn. 
uh, weaponizing the legal system against your business partners, your perceived enemies, the media, in order to get what you want. Okay, and but Jim, wait, wait, I don't want to interrupt you. I understand threatening to sue people. I understand sending people letters. Up to a point, I understand filing a suit. But didn't the lawyers tell him it, it, when the thing went, hey, they're going to have discovery, and these are publishers, lawyers, New York Times lawyers, these are some of the best lawyers in, in, in the city. Why do you keep going through with this? Well, first, he's alienated prior, you know, to going to the White House, he had alienated most, um, you know, um, well-regarded law firms because he didn't pay his bills. <laughs> and and I think some of the lawyers who have connected to him through, uh, through the years have been willing to give him bad advice because they can cash the check and because their name gets in the newspaper just as readily as he does. And so they get what they consider reputational lift from doing it. So, you know, the other thing is he doesn't listen to anyone's advice anyway, James. The only people in the White House that Donald Trump authentically listens to is, is Javanka, you know, Jared and Ivanka. Um, everyone else, including everyone in his cabinet, falls far down the ladder because he is so self-deluded. He believes he has natural instincts that make him an excerpt expert in almost any field. So he just, he doesn't take advice. It doesn't matter what you say to him. Well, he's pretty stupid. Who, does he have good lawyers or he'd run out of good ones by the time he sued you? Uh, I mean, I think the lawyer, when he started with me, his, his lawyer was uh, a very scrappy and, and well-known New York lawyer, as I mentioned, Mark Kasowitz, but I don't know that Mark Kasowitz had a lot, had much experience with libel lawsuits. And um, they picked the wrong venue for the lawsuit. They exposed their client to the wrong things. Um, uh, you know, Trump still says to this day, I'm glad I sued Tim O'Brien. I cost him a lot of money. It didn't cost me a cent. And my book publisher um, had insurance that covered their litigation costs. It did cost Trump several million dollars. Tim, th th this has been fabulous. Let me ask you one more question. You spent a long time with him over the years and you alluded to that that uh, scene at St. John's Church last week. Did you know what a uh, devout disciple of the Bible he was, Tim? <laughs> you know, Donald Trump doesn't read books, much less the Bible. Uh, and we know from his actions that he's certainly not a Christian. Um, uh, the only, you know, his father um, was a devotee of Norman Vincent Peale. Um, uh, the you know he's he goes to a, a quote-unquote church now in florida that that um promotes the prosperity gospel you know if you get rich in life you'll be saved in heaven um which i think is not what jesus said um i don't he has no interest in the bible as anything other than a stage prop he can use to court his evangelical base well, I would, uh, you know, uh, Tim, Tim O'Brien's the best. Uh, and Tim, you, you have referred to this. If anyone out there uh, has not watched Sarah Cooper uh, on Donald Trump, uh, this, this is, this is, this will be a treat. Other than reading Tim O'Brien, uh, it's one of the great things you can do to learn about Donald Trump. She's a fantastic imitator using, using Trump's own voice. Yeah. But Tim, let me promise you one thing. He's going to get beat bad. Really bad. Uh, I'm, you know, I, I'm so humbled by the fact that I was wrong in 2016, but I think all the numbers point to that, James. And when you look in these swing states, I think he's losing Arizona. 
North Carolina, Michigan, Pennsylvania. He can't compete. Right. And, uh, and, 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 and to me, those states collectively spell the death knell. But again, I was wrong in 2016. PTSD, the, the whole Democratic Party is totally traumatized, or the, you know, the whole anti-Trump part of the United States, because there's a lot more against Trump than just the Democratic Party. Let me promise you. Well, I think you know, I think I think you see that in the coalition of people that support oh. Biden. It's it's a, you know, it's a broad coalition of outraged Americans who have good reason to be outraged. We got four-star generals and. 18-year-old African-American teenagers in Chicago in the same coalition. And, and white, white suburban, suburban women. And, and, right. and right. neocons. And <laughs> if the, it won't hold after yeah. November, but we just got to hold it together till then. James, uh, boy, I tell you, there is nobody who knows Donald Trump better than Tim O'Brien. Uh, he just gets him. Uh, he knows He knows the way he reacts. He knows the people around him. I mean, some of the remarks which aren't as calm, as, as Tim said, he's just not very bright. He's, he's, he's shrewd. He's savvy. He's like a whorehouse rat, but he's not very bright. And ultimately, I think that catches up to you. No, he is not that bright. A little bit of politics. Uh, there were a few primaries on Tuesday. Uh, not of great import, with the exception of Georgia. Uh, two things down there, and you've been much more optimistic about the Georgia Senate seats than I've been. But in one of those Senate seats against incumbent David Perdue, the Democrats were forced into a runoff. Now, it's not always bad, but usually runoffs aren't helpful. The front runner John Ossoff, didn't quite get 50 percent. But I think the bigger story down there was it was a voting nightmare. Long lines, machines broke down particularly in the African-American communities. This is a pattern in that state with the governor and now the Republican secretary of state. And I think it is a warning shot for what uh, could happen in November. Yeah, I, I have a lot of friends in Georgia, obviously. And I think the kind of consensus is it's actually good that this happened because all the attention is in, in the general election is going to be on Georgia voting machines, voting machine placement, ballot access. I mean, if the anecdotal evidence I was getting, at least on NPR, people were saying, I waited five hours to vote. Then I went out to Alpharetta and there was nobody in line. I went, I went to Buckhead and it was, you know, and, you know, the, the Democrats in Georgia, probably, I think that everybody thinks they're going to win the state house. They're going to win the house, uh, the house in the state house. So the, the Republicans have a, a lot at stake there. But you know, you can get away with a lot more when when no one is watching. Everybody is going to be watching. They're going to be teams of journalists and down there scouring everything. They, the the Congress is going to have hearings. I mean, they're going to get a lot of attention in this thing. I, and I think that's a good thing. I actually think what happened yesterday and of course the only thing it's going to do and these people waited I, I want to see what the total vote is but i bet you it's pretty high and th there's a site called georgia votes and it's pretty you just google www.georgiavotes.com or whatever and they got all these statistics but georgia is 
it now moved itself into center spot for November 2000, 2020. And I think that's a good thing. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, it does. Um, I think I think that is a good thing. I think another factor here, though, is whatever further uh, stimulus, rescue, whatever bill we call it, there is going to be money or there should be money for the states uh, to facilitate the voting problems they're all going to confront uh, in November. Now, I don't know if Georgia got that money, if they would spend it well or not. Some states would. And uh, the Republicans know that's necessary, and most of them do in the Senate. And the only way it's going to be blocked is if Donald Trump says, I won't sign any bill that has any election money in it or money for the post office. Our friend Fred Wertheimer has been front and center on this. Uh, and the Republicans capitulate. It's important to get more money to the states who are, who are broke right now with this pandemic crisis to help, whether it's machines or whether it's mail-in voting, uh, because they don't have the resources right now. So that's a really big issue in the next month. If, if I were Trump, I wouldn't give him the resources. Right, right. Well, I, I think you're right, except in some places, James, as you know, mail-in votes are not an automatic for Democrats. No, I think it'll help them more this year than usual. But in some, there are probably a couple Republicans up there who say, hey, I want it too. Right. But but if he vetoes it, I mean, I, I look, I don't know, but I just know the amount of attention that is going to be paid to voting, the voting process, how people vote. If people didn't knew about it before, but that, that wasn't front and center in their minds. This is this is as much as COVID or, or, or you know, anything else, any other crisis that we face with, because the answer to this crisis is people voting and people understand that. I, I give you an example, you know, digest everything through the LSU football team, but the leadership counts, right? There's like four players that the coach appoints and they can, you know, go and request a meeting and whatever. What they came in and asked for was buses to take students downtown to register to vote. I mean, that's how ingrained voting is, and particularly in these communities of color, African-American communities. I mean, people want to vote. Yeah. If they're going to – if they think they're seeing people in the street now, you stop people from voting – and there'll be more people in the street than you got now. I think I read that Georgia Tech uh, requested that all athletic activities at universities be suspended on Election Day so people can vote. Uh, I don't think that would have happened five, ten years no, ago. But but you see those people in Georgia, five hours, they're waiting in line. And Stacey yeah. Abrams is very effective. And, you know, she's going to be point person on this. I mean, they stole it from her. And... George is front and center. This has now moved into going to be the most covered state in the 2020 cycle. I thought it was going to be North Carolina before, but now it's going to be Georgia. Well, I think Florida may be in a tie given their history, but you're right. Georgia is certainly front and center. James, one more thing. Uh, George Floyd was murdered 17 days ago in Minneapolis. That's only the latest in a litany of these racial tragedies, uh, too many of them involving police officers. Usually the pattern is there's protests for a week or so, talk about big change, and nothing happens. Uh, I think this one 
is different. I really believe that. That's just not a wish. I think it's different for a couple of reasons. Number one, that video, there was no ambivalence. Everyone could see what happened. You know, almost nine minutes, uh, that thug officer had his knee uh, on Floyd, who said, I can't breathe. It's quite clear. No one can look at it and say, well, he was a threat. Secondly, I think the gra- their grassroots movements, Black Lives Matter surged, that have really built up forces in those communities about these outrages. And thirdly, it's accumulation of these. And I really do believe that, that these this is different. This has gone on now for 17 days. It's not just a bunch of angry inner city blacks, those who have the most right uh, to protest and, and, to, and, and to be outraged, but they're joined by a whole lot of allies. And Trump, who thought he could play the law and order and race card, it's not working. No, it's not. It, how... How much of this translates to policy? We'll see. I mean, but think of this. You know, politicians make a, a decision at a point, and it, it causes me. Look at the Confederate monuments in New Orleans. Suppose that they would not have taken them down, and Robert E. Lee and Justin Davis will sit in these huge stashes. Just think of how much more unrest we would have had. Think of how much more anger there would have been. And think just just and, and think of that in, in a lot of different places around the country where it was kind of perceptive that people saw, well, we didn't see that George Floyd was coming, but they were revolting against the, the Confederate symbols, Confederate monuments. And I think that the fact that a lot of these were taken down had a, a a a positive effect. Now we had huge, huge, huge demonstrations. Police made one mistake. We seem to have gotten through that okay. Uh, but it, you know, it's really it's really something when you think of that one decision that was made. How much difference that made four years later? It's really amazing. No, I agree. But there's James. There's more more to be done. Uh, and I, unless it's changed in the last week. Uh, in Tennessee, on July 13th, there will be a celebration, as there has been every year for the last 40, of Nathan Bedford Forrest Day with his statue in the uh, in the state capitol. This was the first grand dragon of the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, I mean, that is unacceptable. Oh, there's going to be a lot. I'll tell you what. If they got any sense, they wouldn't have that. My, my strong suggestion, don't yeah, do that. Yeah, yeah. Because you're going to have... You're going to have a lot of people yeah, in Music City. Yeah. They're going to be playing more than country music, I promise you. But, but I, I think you're right. I think um, you, you asked how much of it will translate to policy. We don't know, but there are things that are already beginning to happen uh, that, that hadn't happened before. Some states and cities uh, are passing tougher laws on policing. Uh, the, the House is about to pass a bill. Even some Republican senators, Tim Scott and Mitt Romney. Now, they're, they're really kind of mild versions and they don't go nearly far enough. But uh, they have, uh, you know, they're doing stuff. I really think this is different. And the key question at the end is what our guest of a week or so ago, David Harris, said. It's accountability. I think most cops are good, decent officers. But there is more than a few bad apples who aren't. And they have to be held accountable. Uh, and if you don't set up a system of accountability, uh, then not much else is going to matter. Well, I mean, I'm I'm glad you're optimistic. You know, I, I, I think this has had a real effect on white opinion. 
I think if you asked him, I know. If you asked a black person, you went, duh, you didn't know? And, you, you know, I think what most whites say, without personalizing it to you or I, was, yeah, we knew there was a problem out there. And, you know, the Freddie Gray thing, and they, when they put him in the back of the van, you couldn't actually yeah. see it. Yeah. And, and, and I think people's collective, almost a collective gasp of white America was, damn, I didn't know it was like this. Yeah. You know? And, and it really moved. And I was really glad because uh, New York Times called me the day of the day after, you know, about the impact. And I said that the video is going to have a profound effect on white opinion. I mean, I think it galvanized pre-existing black opinion. All right. But whites just went, oh, my God. I mean, I knew it at some level. I knew it was bad. You know, I mean, we come on, we're that stupid. You know, we, if we, I mean, you know, we always talk about it. Talk about my wife. Suppose we had a adopted a black child. I mean, you'd be yeah. mortified. I mean, you think of that. Uh, you know, you and Judy adopted a, a, a Asian child. You think about that right. all the time. Well, boy, you you, you would not stop. You you will be a, a parent. You would be a thousand percent aware of it. I mean, I worry about my students before all of this, and uh, it. But but uh, I, I think it's it, it's shaken white opinion. It really has. Now, how long that lasts? I think it'll have some lasting effect. I really do. Yeah, I do too. Uh, and I think you you know you see that. Um, I, I think they have been helped, uh, frankly, by uh, Donald Trump's uh, outrages. Uh, and some of the behavior and the rhetoric uh, of others. I mean, I would just, you know, one thing which I know is dear to your heart, your uh, New Orleans, your great New Orleans Saint quarterback, Drew Brees, uh, made a mistake. Uh, and he talked about uh, kneeling yeah. as somehow disrespectful right. of the flag as African-American teammates immediately and LeBron James unloaded. And he realized his mistake. Uh, and he issued, I think, what looked right. like a very heartfelt apology but it was still in the balance because it created tensions. And then he was saved by Donald Trump, who criticized him. And now Drew Brees has taken on Donald Trump. And, uh, you know, that that says something. That really does. The, la- the latest is Spike Lee said everything is cool with Drew. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That, that, whatever it was, if there was any residue, that cleaned that up. But you're right. And his wife, Brittany, she's very savvy. And... She really came out too. And what this is the question. Will Roger Goodell walk to midfield and take a knee with Colin Kaepernick? Colin Kaepernick is a true visionary. I mean, he he risked his entire career. And I mean the the the, the venom, the the everything you could imagine about Colin Kaepernick. But, you know, when you look back at Colin Kaepernick, you know, like I told somebody, it don't do any good if you kneel doing Blueberry Hill. Right, right. I mean, the only way you're going to get anybody's attention. And he, in a, a dramatic way, really is an American visionary. I mean that. Because he saw something and brought attention to something. And, you know, oh, we just want to watch football. We don't need all that politics. You're disrespecting the military. I mean, it was all, it was all, a lot of that going on. A lot. And, and now, 
you look back, and you know what, what's really amazing. And I, I, I think Mitch Landrew saw ahead of the curve too. When when people see a problem and bring it to attention of the public long before it explodes in our faces. I mean, I, I think what what Kaepernick did was one of the most remarkable acts of public protest I, 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 literally I've ever seen. James, he is, he is this generation's John Carlos and Tommy Smith. They were the Olympic sprinters in 68 who on the stand, right. they performed, they won, they went on the stand and they held up their fist and they, who is the silver medal? Uh, uh, he's from Australia. You got it. <laughs> Peter Noonan. Exactly. Peter Norman, right. Uh, right. Whatever you got. You, you blew me off, didn't you? Froze. I know, I know I did. Sign of age. But they did. They they actually showed great courage. All they did was hold up their fist. The Black Power salute about um, uh, the way blacks were disenfranchised. And they paid a huge price. And I'm almost sure about 45 years later, uh, Barack Obama awarded them a Medal of Freedom. And I'll tell you, it won't, the good news, it will not take Cole and Kaepernick 45 years. Uh, it'll be in the first Biden administration. He will be at the White House receiving a Medal of Freedom, which will be justly deserved. Yeah, it'll be the first year. Okay? I mean, I just, and you just think of the how everybody went nuts. I mean, the sports leagues, the, you know, the, the, the everything. I, it, it's just an amazing story. Yeah. It really is. And then the Nike ad. I mean, Colin Kaepernick is a global brand. You now have a number of, of white quarterbacks and white players who are saying he deserves to be in our league. Uh, that wasn't the case three or four years ago. And, and you know, these players, uh, you know, if, if you're playing Dallas Cowboys, you don't want to be thought of as, you know, a corporate guy. You know, and the other players, you know, Michael Thomas with the Saints has been very, very, probably the best receiver in the league. I think he probably is. I mean, at least one of the best three in the league for sure. And and he was very out front. And, you know, he was the first person to comment on, on Drew's initial take. And, you know, these guys, you know, they, they have reputations and they have, you know, very competitive, obviously, the professional football players. What, what do you expect? And the Cowboy players, uh, uh, I guarantee you, there are any number of Zoom team meetings going on here right now. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Same with the um, inappropriately named Washington Redskins. But uh, it is, I think, I really do believe it's a sea change. How much policy changes will occur, we don't know yet. There'll be some, and they may just build to do more. Uh, more than others, but we are witnessing a, uh, a really important time. James, this has been a great show. I, I thank Tim O'Brien again. Anyone out there who hasn't read Trump Nation, I think you can still get it from Amazon. Uh, and I want to thank you for listening to 2020 Politics War Room and follow the show on Twitter at Politics War Room. You can also email us, politicswarroom uh, at gmail.com. Uh, and that's politicswarroom at gmail.com. If you have a comment or question for us, let us know what you think of the show. Thank you for subscribing. Please tell your sons and daughters, sisters and brothers on your next Zoom call. And also tell them to please be safe. Tell the whole family. James, down in New Orleans, you stay safe. Uh, and we'll talk to you again next week.